I've rebranded conflict of interest to alignment of interest. In every case, I've tried to create these alignments between what I'm doing in the academic lab to have spun off companies that are aligned on the goal. And the goal is always with that clear line of sight to the patient. How are we going to positively impact the life of that patient and their family? And what can we do in the lab, in the company, with the collaboration with pharma to be able to achieve that goal? Welcome to the NGB Ideas podcast. This show is about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences sector. Hi, I'm your host, Jim Wilson, and this episode marks the end of our first season, which has been brought to you by Lab Occupier and OmniaBio. Over the last few months, we've had the privilege of interviewing industry leaders, a few disruptors, and a lot of innovators from coast to coast. Our guest for our final show this season is John Lewis, who is the Bird Dogs Chair in Translational Oncology at the University of Alberta and founder and CEO of Entos Pharma in Edmonton. We're delighted to have John on the show today because he fits into every one of our categories. He's an academic scientist who leads one of the top oncology research organizations in Canada. He's a serial entrepreneur who commercializes innovative research, and he and his team are doing a great job of chipping away at the Canadian life sciences status quo. I'm looking forward to our discussion today, John, but before we get there, I'd like to mention something that caught my eye when we were doing our background research for this interview. You're from Owen Sound, and for those who may not know, it's a small city in Ontario on the south coast of Georgian Bay and was founded in 1840. And for the history of bus out there, of which I am one, Owen Sound was a major port in the Great Lakes in the 1800s. In fact, it was such a booming place, it was known as Chicago of the North. And I've mentioned on our podcast that I am a fan of Canadian history, and I, I was surprised to learn that your hometown holds the record for having the longest prohibition period in Canada. It was dry, at least in theory, for 66 years from 1906 to 1972, which means you were born during prohibition. That's correct, Jim. Absolutely. We actually had a family connection to it as well. Let's go there first. Yeah, sure. So my grandfather, Nick Scopus, ran the Scopus Restaurant, sort of a landmark in Owen Sound for many years. So it was a regular diner kind of place on Main Street. But what isn't public is that upstairs, he had a little bit of a speakeasy going on during the Prohibition era. It was frequently populated by the locals. So entrepreneurialism did not start with your generation. Absolutely not. Long line. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. I think the statute of limitations has expired. I mentioned you were born in Owen Sound, and I understand your father was an ophthalmologist, but I think I'd like to learn more about your grandfather. Was he alive when you were born? He was, absolutely. Yeah, so got a chance to get to know him really well. Oh, that's great. And your father was an ophthalmologist, and your mother worked with him in his practice. Could you tell us a bit about them? My father, Dave Lewis, born in the UK, just outside of London, moved to Canada, I guess looking at the opportunities in the UK for a physician, Canada was a wide open area. And so moved to Canada when he was 25. Just so happened to work for a summer in a very small town in Ontario, Owen Sound. And my mother just happened to be working at the hospital at the same time. And they were eating lunch and and he asked if he could kindly sit down at the same table as her. and, And I believe they were both eating pork chops. That started the whole journey. I'm gonna leave that alone, but that's cool. So I understand you're the oldest of five boys. Where are you in the pecking order? So I'm the oldest. So as the oldest, were you the responsible one who used to babysit your little brothers? And absolutely not. Not the most reliable child, very adventurous. I would say my second oldest brother, Mike, sort of filled that role for us. So with five brothers under one household, it was a bit of a loud household, I'm guessing? Yeah, so five boys, all within 10 years. I mean, our house always had holes in the walls, always had stuff to be repaired. And my parents handled extremely well, though, especially having a busy ophthalmic practice. And my mom running the practice was definitely all hands on deck at all times. I hope everyone's still with us. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's great. At that time, I believe Owen Sound was about 20,000 people. What do you remember about growing up there? I love growing up in Owen Sound. It's a relatively small town, sort of two big high schools, really get to know everybody. It's on the Niagara Escarpment, so it's very easy. Just three blocks away from our house, you can get up into the forest, go on fantastic hikes, or get up to shenanigans or or whatever. And and you could basically walk across town in about 30 minutes or ride your bike across town. So I really loved growing up there, probably until I was about 16, and that one sound sort of became too small. I got my driver's license and began to see what what else is out there in Ontario. But yeah, I really loved it. What I was particularly impressed about at Owen Sound is the quality of the high school there. I went to West Hill Secondary School 
My mom had gone there before me. There was a plaque on the wall showing when she graduated 30 years before. That was pretty cool. The quality of my education there was just spectacular. I just had some really standout teachers, particularly in biology and chemistry, that set me up really well for heading the university. Did they plant the seed? Absolutely. And I would say mostly in chemistry. I, I loved chemistry. I love physics. Chemistry in particular, Mr. Dudgeon was my teacher, and he just had so much enthusiasm. And because of that, I became really interested and really excelled in the chemistry side of things. Owen Sound's got a pretty strong hockey pedigree. Were you a hockey player? Do you play any sports when you were a kid? Yeah. My dad was awesome, but being from the UK, he was much more about football or soccer than hockey. I did play hockey, of course. I couldn't really avoid it. I started playing hockey, but it was a little bit late. I was in, uh, I was eight years old. So by that time, just learning to skate, it was, uh, it was a little bit of a tough slog. But I kept it up. Obviously, played a lot of hockey all the way through uh, university. But I would say my brothers were ahead of the game, just became really enthusiastic hockey players. Did you have any summer jobs growing up that you remember? I had some amazing summer jobs. So we had a cottage in Southampton, Ontario. It's about half an hour away from Owen Sound on the water there. And we would play tennis there. I, I taught tennis for a little bit. I worked in a chip wagon there, which was memorable. And I worked in a lot of restaurants. Worked in a restaurant called Bellamy's Restaurant and Eastside Mario's, Kelsey's. Kelsey's is sort of an Ontario standard. And a really interesting job I had was working for the Ministry of Natural Resources. So I got this job for the fisheries department. You know, I got paid minimum wage. I think it was like $4.60 an hour. But I got to do some really interesting things. And one of the coolest things I got to do was to fly up in a Cessna starting in Wyerton. So we go to the Wyerton Airport. And we fly into Cessna all the way down the coast of Lake Huron. My job was to count fishing boats. They had some sort of algorithm or some sort of math that would calculate the impact of fishing on the, the stocks because the Department of Fisheries would stock the lakes with fry to help boost the fish stocks. And, and I was playing a small role in the research to figure out the impact of sport fishing. What a cool summer job for a kid. That was fantastic. So you go back to high school and say, hey, guess what I did this summer? I understand you learned to program at a very young age. How old were you when you got into it, and who was the person who introduced you? I mean, obviously, I'm of the age where I basically saw computers be developed. I think it was 11th or 12th grade, our school got the first Commodore pet computer, which is sort of this alien-looking thing with a tiny little green screen, and, and we would learn COBOL programming and then became very, very interested in it. We got a Commodore 64 at home, and, and we used to be able to get magazines where they'd have programs you'd write out in basic, and eventually began to program on my own, which really flourished into learning languages like Pascal and C and C++, all from books at that time, and then writing programs for to make life better for the things I was doing, and, and actually ended up writing programs to automate my parents' office, for instance. And how old were you? Started when I was young, maybe 10, 11 years old and then maturing, you know, over time. Wow, that's cool. I've got a 12-year-old right now, and I think I'm sliding him down that path, intentionally or not. I grew up in North Bay, which is about twice the size of Owen Sound, and when I graduated from high school, I was pretty eager to get out of town. Did you have a similar goal when you were that age? Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, when I got my driver's license at 16, that was basically the beginning of me discovering all of the other larger cities. And of course, being you know, close to Sound, maybe Kitchener-Waterloo, went there a lot, Guelph a lot, and of course, London, Ontario, which I went for homecoming weekend once, I think it was 17 or 18. My eyes were opened, you know, it was just, uh, it was so much fun. That's what really made me fall in love with the city of London. I think you've just answered my next question was why London. So you ended up going to what was then the University of Western Ontario, now Western University in 1989. Sounds like there was some geographic desirability there, but also a fun homecoming fresh in your memory. You did an honors Bachelor of Sciences degree in genetics, and we touched earlier on your, your interest in science, but how did you end up choosing that path specifically? My undergrad I would say it was very science and math focused, although I took things like one of my favorite courses, meteorology, which we called clouds at the time. It was supposed to be a bird course and really interesting and, and not that easy. Took economics, which I think was very valuable as well. But eventually, I mean, I, I really focused on the sciences. And Western at the time had really just started a brand new genetics honors program. And obviously, I was really interested. We hadn't sequenced the human genome yet, or we were just at that time when it was happening. And so I was really excited about the possibility of learning basically how we tick, how we're programmed. For me, it came really from the interest in computers and programming. You know, our body has DNA in every cell six meters long of a biological program that dictates who we are, how we behave, interact, and how we evolve. And so for me, that was really exciting learning about it and then potentially in the future being able to manipulate it to cure disease. 
if I understand correctly, your honors project focused on the first gene targeting that was done. Could you tell us about that? So gene targeting, we call homologous recombination, was really at its very early stages. All the first papers were just coming out. At that time, we didn't have the whole genome. We just had sequences of individual genes. We knew that some mutations in some genes would cause disease, like cystic fibrosis, for instance. And the idea that if you knew the correct sequence, could you replace the defective sequence with a correct sequence? And the technology we had available at the time was homologous recombination or gene targeting. And basically what you would do is you would take pretty long kilobase, so tens of thousands of bases of nucleotides on each side of the gene that were the same as the side of the gene and then have a piece in the middle that corrected the error. And hopefully through the internal recombination machinery in the cell, we basically find these sequences, recombine them, and put the proper sequence in. But the efficiency at that time, and it's all through my thesis, the efficiency at that time, the big uh, advance was increasing the efficiency from like 1 in 10 billion to 1 in 100 million. I mean, a huge improvement, but certainly not viable for gene therapy that you and I would take. Well, thanks for sharing that. I've learned over the, the podcasts that we've done so far that the people that I interview light up when they start talking about what it is they do, and, and you just lit up, and it's so cool to see. During your undergrad years, I understand you also started your first company. What was that? So always entrepreneurial, and I would say I probably had a few side gigs, plans going on before that, but in my undergrad, I actually started a computer company. I think it was called Innovative Solutions, and really just started helping out friends, building computers for friends, and, and writing computer programs. But again, it was mainly just taking this hobby of mine that I'd become proficient at and turning it into something I could make a couple bucks with. Wow. And hopefully you did. One of your undergrad profs, Tom Haffey, helped point you down, well, what became your life's path. Could you tell us about him? Tom, I think, was a sessional professor. And now I realize that he was working his way up to be a full professor. So he was a part of this new honors genetics program at Western, really, I think, responsible for teaching most of the core courses. He was just so engaging, was able to illustrate why genetics were so important that really just got me excited about the field. We would have a ton of conversations sort of outside class as well. For me, hanging out with Tom and listening to teach and having conversations with him really solidified in my mind that whatever I was going to do in the future was going to incorporate gene therapy genetics. Was he still there when you returned to Western as a broth? He was actually. And one of my first grad students that I recruited at Western was being taught by Tom still, which was amazing. So he was still there. He was still getting people enthusiastic about gene therapy. And, and I had the opportunity to take some of the people he'd mentored and bring them into my graduate program. That is so cool. Other than that, what do you recall about your undergrad years at London? Was it tough for you? Was it chock-a-block? I'm going to be honest, school was never all that tough. I always made sure I took courses that challenged me. The pre-med courses were always designed to be tough and, and weed people out. Organic chemistry, we called orgo, in second year was particularly difficult. I maintained relatively good marks. I managed to not party too much, and so I managed to keep those marks up. Early years in, in university are pretty general. As we got more specific about stuff that could be applied, I, I just yeah, became much more focused. You graduated in 1993, and you started working as an accountant. Was that intentional? Like, why accounting? A couple of things happened that led me to accounting. The summer after university, I was maybe a little bit burnt out. So we thought, what could we do for the summer that would be outside, where we'd be our own boss, and we can make some money? Me and a couple of friends of mine said, let's just start an eavesdropping company. We thought this was a great idea. So we got a bank loan. We actually bought an eavesdropping forming you know, machine. We hired somebody. We were starting to do quotes on apartment buildings. And then after one night, maybe we were drinking a couple of beers. We just thought, this is crazy. We're not going to use stuff. I actually instead became a bartender for a little while. One of the other bartenders at this place I worked at, this karaoke bar, had an opportunity to interview as an accountant. And I thought that was so crazy that maybe I'd sign up to and take an interview. So you did that for four years. What did that pivot teach you? So obviously a karaoke bar bartender was a lot of fun. It taught me a lot of important skills. That was to balance out the accountant part of it. <laughs> So it's certainly, I would say, my experience with programming, I, mean, I was always good with numbers and math, but this job was really interesting. This job was a company called Farm Business Consultants. They're mainly based in Ontario, but are spread out across Canada. And their model was that you as the bookkeeper accountant would go out to the client's place 
anywhere in Ontario, and a lot of them were farms, you know, or car dealerships, or even large corporations. And you would basically do their bookkeeping and do their income tax on the spot. The catch was is that you would collect their fees on the spot. So it was an accounting slash sales job because if they were upset about something gone wrong with their taxes, then you had to resolve it on the spot and make them happy or you didn't get paid. It was sort of a, I wouldn't say high stress, but certainly some consequences to not being great at your job. And so it really taught me at the same time as I learned all about corporate organization and how to save taxes and how to make businesses efficient, also learning how to solve problems and make people happy at the same time. For me, that was transformative. And it sounds like you got to a point where you said, you know, I think I should go back to school. So in 1996, you decided to move to Victoria and started a PhD in biochemistry. First, walk me through this. Why UVic? My answer is, I don't know how satisfying it's going to be. After four years of doing this accounting, I knew I wanted to get back to science and sort of continue on this journey to learn gene therapy. And I actually had a girlfriend at the time who really wanted to go to art therapy school in Victoria. So we drove across the country and ended up there. I applied to Michael Smith's laboratory in Vancouver, Nobel Prize winner who's unfortunately passed. He was actually open to me joining him. And then I realized Vancouver and Victoria weren't really a good commute. So I basically walked around the halls of the biochemistry department at the University of Victoria. I basically chatted with all the professors there and ended up meeting Juan. The entrepreneurial trip continues. While you were there, did you end up at Tofino learning how to surf? Did you hike the West Coast Trail? Or I'm thinking you might have. Vancouver Island, just a fantastic place to live. Owen Sound was pretty cold, lots of snow, and very quaint, but, but Victoria is beautiful climate. You have the ocean there, so spent a lot of time in Tofino. I did learn how to surf in a 6.5 mil wetsuit, but still, it's just incredible. Windsurfed up there, did so much hiking. I did not hike the West Coast Trail, actually. The Juan de Fuca Trail was sort of the trail you didn't have to book ahead, and so I did that trail a bunch of times. And we actually had an iconic trip, six guys who were grad students, went up to Cape Scott, which is the northern tip of Vancouver Island, and did a fully immersed seven-day camping trip in the wild, which was just incredible. I did the West Coast Trail last year. If you want to go back and try it, highly recommend it. So you mentioned a moment ago Dr. Juan Osio. You ended up in his lab. What was his area of study and how'd that happen? He's a Spanish guy, just over five feet tall, super enthusiastic, and he was well-known, actually. He studies chromatin. And what chromatin basically is, I mentioned that there's six meters of DNA in every cell of your body. Well, how does that six meter of DNA get into something that you can't even see with the naked eye? It's basically folded and organized in a very precise way using these proteins called histones. And histones, again, create this environment where the, it's highly compact. You can open up any gene at any time and turn it on through these proteins. And Juan was really well known for discovering that one of these histone proteins, histone H4, becomes modified with an acetyl group, and that opens up the chromatin to allow transcription or the turning on of a gene. And so, great, you're well known for this. You know, I'm really excited about how genes are regulated, and, and this is sort of my area that I want to get into. And Juan said, yeah, absolutely, that's right, but I have a lot of grants for that, but I also have grants for studying these chromatin histone proteins in sperm. If you work on that, because I don't have everybody to work on that, if you work on that, I guarantee you're going to publish the greatest papers and it's going to be a great career for you. I wasn't completely sure when he first pitched it to me, but given his enthusiasm, I thought, okay, why not? Let's try it out. So for my PhD, I studied the proteins that organize DNA in sperm. And that conversation, it sounds like, changed the path of your career. It certainly did, yeah. So number one, we ended up publishing, I think I published 15 papers in my PhD. So there was just a ton of work to do and, and it was a completely open field. And I was able to actually build quite a name in that field through the course of my PhD. I think more importantly, though, was the, the really hardcore basic biochemistry learning. So, I mean, I learned how to use HPLC. So it's basically a way to separate proteins in a complex mix and sat there, you know, till three in the morning collecting little vials of proteins and I learned how to sequence the DNA of these organisms manually and run these gels. We, and back then we ran, you know, three or four foot gels and we had to keep them intact. And, you know, it was two in the morning and, and we'd have to read them manually. And so it's, it's old school now. We do the, now the same thing in about five minutes, a thousand at the same time. Really learned hardcore biochemistry and most importantly, learned the fundamentals of how proteins are made and how we can interrogate how they work and what they are. 
while I'm not studying sperm proteins anymore, I think that basis in learning biochemistry and the marriage of biochemistry with genetics, I think, was really critical to give me the flexibility to then have my next part of my career. Wow. You said earlier you drove out to the West Coast with a girlfriend, and I know that you met your wife in Victoria, one and the same, different people. No, I learned that she was great to travel with, but not so great to settle down with. So that relationship didn't last much longer than arriving in Victoria. And I had the fortune, basically, to meet my wife at a conference. We were actually in Monterey, California, at a famous venue, both giving a talk in the same session. She was doing her master's, believe it or not, at the University of Alberta in chromatin research. And we met, basically, at the beginning of the session, introduced each other, and the rest is history. So he saddled up to her and said, what's your talk on? Exactly, yeah. I'll never forget. She was wearing a bright pink sweater and walked right up to her and introduced myself. Good for you. You spent the next six years completing your PhD and graduated in 2003. What do you recall about that time in your life? Anybody who's done a PhD in biochemistry or any other science knows that it's certainly full of ups and downs. And I would say it's probably 80% learning. And then you finally get it. And then you produce most of your research in the last little bit. And I wouldn't say mine was much different. Certainly over the period of time, develop skills and knowledge around the area. And then the last two years really put my head down and learned a lot of new things, published some great papers. And again, my PhD wasn't really super quick. I think it was six and a half years. I also started another company during that time. So you have an excuse. Exactly. Yeah. At the end of your PhD, you had a close family member who was diagnosed with cancer. And I understand it was a, a difficult time in your life and one that also had a significant impact on your career. So if it's not too personal, I would appreciate you sharing whatever you're comfortable with about that experience. Personally, it was actually the pivotal moment in my career. So I'd met my, at the time, girlfriend and then fiance. Her father was diagnosed with metastatic kidney cancer before I'd even met him. We were working in the lab with just cutting edge technologies really exciting new applications of computer science to medicine. Frankly, I was appalled at the current standard of care for cancer. Kidney cancer had been pretty much ignored. There were no novel treatments. There were, there were some chemotherapies that worked in other cancers that really didn't work in kidney cancer. And even the clinical trials he was offered, one of them, believe it or not, was thalidomide. I was just dumbfounded that this was all they had. Seriously? Where was he? So he was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We found a clinical trial in Michigan, sent to the Mayo Clinic. So we, of course, we were, you know, we were trying hard to find what was the state of the art in kidney cancer. And I was appalled that thalidomide was his only hope. Wow. So that was a pivotal moment in your career that steered you down another path. So seeing this current state of cancer diagnosis and, and treatment, I thought, you know, I got to take all this knowledge I have in genetics, computer science, and biochemistry and apply it to something that where I can actually make an impact because definitely an impact needs to be made in oncology. If I understand correctly, while you were in San Diego, you were looking at designing plant viruses that would be able to target cancer. And again, could you take a moment to explain that? So I moved down to San Diego. It also had good surfing, so that was a plus. But what it also has are just some of the world's preeminent research institutions. So the Salk Institute I was looking at, Scripps Institute, where I ended up doing my postdoc. And I found the perfect project for me. So this was a lab. Heidi Stuhlman was my mentor. She was a very famous vascular biologist, which means she was studying the cells that line blood vessels, endothelial cells, but she was collaborating with one of the world's leading researchers in plant viruses. And they had this, you could call it a crazy idea, but I think it was a prescient idea to basically engineer plant viruses, which are pretty inert in our bodies. I and mean, we eat them all the time in our lettuce, engineer them to basically be smart bombs to go after cancer. For me, that was the ideal project because it married biochemistry, which is the plant virus, it's a protein virus, sort of with engineering, and of course, the genetics of being able to target some cancer. I just love the idea from the, the get-go. Wow. It was around this time that your wife, Natalie, got accepted into medical school at Dalhousie. She wrote the MCAT right before we moved to San Diego and got a reasonably good score, and then applied to med school, actually, the moment we got there, kind of crossing my fingers that maybe she wouldn't get in the first time. And so I think she just missed the cut the first year, but the second year she got in. I'll never forget. I was slated to give a presentation in Chicago at a meeting that day. She found it at like six in the morning. We're in the taxi going to the airport with a bottle of champagne, <laughs> celebrating her uh, getting into med school at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. But it was really somewhere over the Grand Canyon that it dawned on me that I'd have to move from my idyllic spot in San Diego up to Canada again. And, and what the heck was I going to do? 
So a lot of thinking about what the next stage of my career might look like. So you moved from San Diego from one coastal town to another to Halifax, and she started med school, and you started your first biotech company. And before we talk about that company, I'd appreciate talking a bit more about your family. You and your wife moved from Victoria to San Diego to Halifax, then London, and again, she was in medical school. That must have been a stressful time as a family. We got married right before we moved to San Diego and hadn't had kids yet. It was a potentially stressful time for our family, but we made the best of it. We had a Mazda Miata, and we put a suitcase on the back of the trunk of that Miata, and we drove it all the way across the U.S. So we went to the Grand Canyon, we went to to Arches National Park, we went through Colorado Springs, and there was a boring part in the middle, but and then went to Bar Harbor, Maine, and took the ferry across to Nova Scotia. So we just had a fantastic sort of trip to end off our San Diego experience. And of course, you know, moving to a new place and then having to find new things to do and set up new friend group and everything. Of course, it's challenging, but yeah, we made the best of it. Sounds like that's a theme in your life, making the best of anything that comes at you. You and your wife and Adley have four kids who are 15, 10, and 7-year-old twins. Are boys, girls? 15-year-old boy, 10-year-old boy, and then 7-year-old boy, girl. So another busy household. Let's go back to Halifax and talk about the first company you founded, which was Innova Screen. That's correct. What was that company about and where'd the idea come from? I mentioned in my postdoctoral training, we were developing these plant viruses to target tumors. But what we didn't really have a good model for was how could we know that the particles were hitting the tumor, how many were getting in, were they getting into the right part of the tumor to kill it? And so ended up collaborating with a lab down the hall and one particular other postdoctoral fellow, Audrey Zilstra, who had been working on a shellless chicken embryo model of cancer. Which to unpack is basically you take fertilized eggs, you liberate them from the shell, you incubate them in a dish, and when you do that, they form this choroallantoic membrane on the surface, which is normally on the inside surface of the shell for basically for them to breathe, but it is a transparent membrane that has a lot of blood vessels that supports the growth of human tumors on it. And because it's transparent, you can see everything, and if you put it under a microscope, you can actually visualize the cancer growing, visualize the cancer cells escaping, visualize the blood vessels growing in. It's really spectacular. So we founded this company, InnovaScreen, on this idea that we could model human cancer in these chicken embryos in a high-throughput way and use it to make key critical decisions on whether to advance novel oncology drugs based on the data we would collect. I understand you worked with a few researchers at Dalhousie at that time, and one of them was Roy Duncan. Could you tell us about him? So we launched the company in Halifax. We actually, through my connections in California, had were working with several pharma companies in the U.S. But the third client we ever had was Roy Duncan, Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Dalhousie, career virologist, very well known in his field of real viruses. But turns out the real virus that he was studying is the only, and I'll unpack this in a second, the only non-envelope virus to make a fusion protein. Now, the difference between an enveloped and a non-enveloped virus is an enveloped virus has a membrane on the outside, a lipid membrane, and this particular one didn't. And the, the viruses like HIV, like flu, they have a fusion protein in their envelope that allows them to get into cells, basically stealthily sneak into cells. And he had discovered this real virus that affects things like bats, things like alligators and birds, the only non-enveloped virus to make a fusion protein. And because of that, it's evolved completely differently than these other fusion proteins. It is super cool, really tiny. It doesn't elicit a, an immune response in the host, so it's stealthy. And actually, Roy learned, he sort of spent you know decades learning about these proteins, learned that you could put them into a lipid platform, like a lipid nanoparticle, and they would fuse directly with cells. And so he brought that to me, hoping to get some data showing them targeting cancer. I thought this technology was revolutionary. I thought I've never seen anything like it. The application for genetic medicine gene therapies was just astronomical. And so that began a, a long friendship and a business relationship. And you were involved with NovaScreen for 14 years and left in September 2019. D did you sell the company? What happened there? We stopped operations of that company quite a few years ago before we launched Antos Pharmaceuticals. So working with Roy, basically doing most of the work in our academic labs, we worked on these fusion proteins and their ability to deliver genetic medicines. And then the, the business around the chick embryo really became much more part of my lab. 
than it did become a part of a company. Because we realized, I mean, Innova Screen's business model was basically to do other people's research. So somebody would give us a novel cancer compound, we test it in our platform and give them the results. And what I was really excited about, especially with the friendship with Roy and, and these fusion proteins, was that we would be developing from the ground up a novel technology that was completely differentiated, different than any other gene delivery technology. We'd like to pause for a moment to explain what the NGB Ideas podcast is all about. This show is part of Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, which is a speakers event taking place in Hamilton this October, where many of Canada's key leaders, innovators, and disruptors from coast to coast will be providing updates on what they're doing, where they're going, and what next great big ideas are on their horizon. This is an event in support of McMaster Children's Hospital, and we hope you can join us. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. You're on this entrepreneurial path. Your wife's in medical school. You're looking at some job opportunities at the time at Dalhousie. And in 2006, you're offered the Robert Hardy Chair in Translational Prostate Cancer Research at the London Health Sciences Center. And you went to London. And you became an assistant prof back at Western. And we touched on that earlier. What was that time like? Was that out of the blue? How did that come about? That was a difficult decision. I mean, my plan in Halifax was to try to get a faculty position at Dalhousie. But I think, to be honest, since I already had a company there, already had a lab, already was successful, the motivation for the department to really recruit me was, was not there. So I looked outside and I applied actually just to Western because that's how where I'd done my honors degree, right? And end up connecting with just a fantastic group there. They were advertising a job in cancer metastasis, which for me was the critical question in oncology, the critical thing that had really impacted my father-in-law was the fact that it metastasized or spread. And, and cancer is basically binary like this. If it stays put where it starts, pretty much curable. If it spreads, almost incurable. And so for me, I really wanted to study metastasis and bring to bear some of these technologies of sort of amassed over the years against cancer metastasis. What was interesting, though, is I didn't get that job. There was a nurse in the urology department at the hospital who had won the lottery at this Robert Hardy figuratively won the lottery or no he won the lottery literally not figuratively won the lottery and donated half his winnings to create an endowed research chair in prostate cancer at the university and so they said well this potassium position you know we have someone else for it but what would you think of an endowed chair in prostate cancer and so that really was a very difficult i mean it was a, just an incredible opportunity for someone to just come out of a postdoc and although i wasn't planning on becoming an academic scientist i really couldn't refuse the offer and and so glad that I said yes. Wow. And so you and your wife went to London and you started teaching at that point? So I did some teaching, but really the goal of the lab was basically to create a translational oncology research lab focused mainly on prostate cancer, but for me really focused on why cancer spread and how can we block, either detect early or block the spread of cancer. Where did the funding for that project come from? Through the endowed research chair, there was some monies and of course... As any new academic scientist, I applied for, I don't know, 40, 50 grants and luckily got some of them. We were very fortunate. Uh, we very strong philanthropic group in, in Southern Ontario and London, Ontario in particular. So we had some really spectacular donations come in, including one transformative $10 million donation that really allowed us to build a competitive, productive translational oncology program there. In 2011, you got an offer from the University of Alberta to become the new founding chair of the Alberta Prostate Cancer Research Initiative. And you started there in January 2012 and spent the next decade working on a lot of projects. What attracted you to Alberta? So I'll be honest, my goal was, you know, having met Natalie when she was doing her master's in Edmonton and visiting Edmonton a few times, Edmonton wasn't really on my radar or places I wanted to stop in my career. But once I visited Edmonton as a part of the recruitment process, my decision changed almost immediately. And part of the reason was, is the chair I took actually was the Frank and Carla Sajanki chair. And I got to meet Frank and Carla Sajanki basically 10 minutes after I got off the plane. So he'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer 23 years earlier. He'd been very successful in his life in commercial real estate. He'd been treated very well. Just had a fantastic medical oncologist, Peter Venner, who I also became very good friends with. He was so impressed with the clinical treatment he received in Edmonton. But when he asked about research and what was going on in research in Edmonton, Peter basically had to say, well, pretty much nothing. And so he got a bunch of his buddies together. They called themselves the bird dogs because they uh, did some hunting. 
And they went out and hunted some donors and raised money to create this chair. And so when they communicated that to me when I landed, forget everything else about the job, I thought, these are the kind of people I want to work with. I want to work with people who are passionate about the cause. We have a, an unmet need in prostate cancer, a lot of things that we can try to solve. And Alberta is really the perfect place to do it. Four million people under sort of a single healthcare system. So we could do really efficient clinical trials, really efficient recruiting into cohorts, for instance. And they were passionate about going and continuing to raise money for the program so that we could achieve our goals. So that really excited me. And, and so it made the decision easy to move there. People make the place. So you're running an institute that had a team of over 300 scientists, physicians, and healthcare staff, and you had this entrepreneurial drive just genetically embedded in you. So with everything else on your radar, in November 2016, you became the founder and chief scientific officer of Oizen Biotechnologies. Where'd that come from? It's uh, another example of serendipity. So this fusion protein that Roy Duncan discovered, we did a lot of work on it to bring it to the point where we felt it could be launched into its own company. So we founded Entos Pharmaceuticals in 2016. But that was just a very nascent company, maybe three employees at the time. And I got a random call one day. I'm in my office in uh, Edmonton. I get this call from a guy, Matt Schultz. And Matt basically said, hey, John, you don't know me, but we have some common friends. I am really passionate about gene therapies. I've searched all of the gene therapies that are out there, and I haven't found a single one that could do what I want to do. And of course, I said, so Matt, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to make us live forever. And I said, okay. You know, internally, I was thinking, okay, well, where's this going? But he'd done his research. There was a group at the Mayo Clinic who had basically shown the population of cells in your body called senescent cells. So basically, these are cells that you accumulate as you age because you get genetic mutations, but they're unable to die. So there's a senescence program that basically puts the brakes on them and said, okay, you can't divide anymore. You can't turn into cancer. And they're preventing themselves from dying. But these accumulate in your body and basically start to break down your tissue, break down your collagen. A really fantastic study done at the Mayo Clinic has shown that if you could destroy these cells in mice, the mice lived 25% longer. They didn't get cancer. They didn't get spinal abnormalities as they grew older. Their hair color didn't change color. Matt formed a company called Oshin Biotechnologies, basically created gene therapy that would do exactly the same thing. He figured out the way to do it. But what he hadn't figured out is how to get that therapy into cells in people. So did I mispronounce it? Is it Oshin or? We call it Ocean or Oshin or Oshin is the perfectly correct way, but Ocean is perfectly fine as well. Okay. I'll follow your lead. So you're at the Cancer Research Initiative and you continue to develop diagnostic technologies. And in January, 2017, you're the founder and CEO of Nanostics, which was a startup that spun out of the initiative. I did a bit of reading on that. It's a pretty cool company. Could you tell us about that one? That project started basically from one of the first days I landed in London in my first job. So I was always frustrated with the fact that, so in prostate cancer specifically, you know, we have this test called the PSA test, prostate-specific antigen test. Every man is, is counseled to get it, you know, when they turn 50 or sometimes 40, if they have a family history of prostate cancer. It's made by your prostate cells and it shouldn't be in your blood. But it gets in your blood when you have cancer. But it also gets in your blood if you ride a bike or who knows what else, get a prostate infection. And so the issue here is that to actually, so if you have an elevated PSA, the only way to definitively diagnose prostate cancer is a prostate biopsy, which is like a one-inch rectal ultrasound with 12 to 14 needles pressed to the prostate. It's a super invasive procedure. I was always frustrated with the fact that we have this PSA test, which is actually 80 to 85% false positive. So usually it's not cancer. And then we have all these biopsies that we're doing and creating all this harm and morbidity in men with the biopsy, and most of them are negative. We have to be able to do better than this. So right from the beginning, we were trying to discover new genes, new biomarkers that predicted whether you had prostate cancer, and more importantly, if that prostate cancer was going to kill you, and also working on technologies to be able to sample this from the blood without sticking a needle through the prostate. And that's where Nanostics came out. So in 2017, we've sort of had our first result in a group of men we recruited in Alberta that the test we had developed, so the prototype test, worked extremely well. In fact, if it worked as well as we thought it did, we'd be able to save between 35 and 50% of all prostate biopsies. Wow. Every time I think this is going to get more interesting, it gets more interesting. If my timeline is correct, around this time, lipid nanoparticles were just being discovered by Peter Cullis at UBC. What did Dr. Cullis's research mean to you and your research? Lipid chemistry was his thing. 
he was really passionate about the biophysics of it. And that allowed him to create this whole field of lipid nanoparticles that are able to deliver genetic material, among other things, through what's called endosomal escape. So lipids are basically in every cell of your body, and you can create a particle out of lipids that where you can put inside genetic material or even drugs and deliver them into cells. So we've known for many years that if you make a lipid positively charged, it will interact with cells and get in. But if you put too many positive charges in your bloodstream, it's toxic. So what Peter, his fantastic contribution was developing a new class of lipids that were actually not positively charged until the cell took them up. So it's called endocytosis, and then they're taking up everything in the bloodstream that might be good or bad, and basically they acidify them. They put acid in these endosomes to basically break down what's in there and get rid of it. But these particular lipids become positive in this acid environment, and those positive charges then allow it to break out and deliver the genetic material. And this launched a whole new area of genetic delivery where you could deliver nucleic acids that could either turn genes on or turn genes off in these lipid particles that could then be delivered to cells in a way that was less toxic. So this wave of research is building, and in 2018, you founded a late-stage preclinical cancer company called Oncosenix. You're the chief scientific officer, and this company is based in Seattle, Washington. What's it about? So this really followed on from my interaction with Oshin Biotechnologies and Matt Schultz. Through the activities at Oshin, the goal of that company was to kill senescent cells using genetics. And it was great because I was able to write programs in DNA that would, I would send all throughout the body using our delivery technology, but the genetic program only activated in senescent cells. And basically when it got into senescent cells, it would activate a suicide gene that would basically tell the cell to commit suicide. So what's great about that is in every single cell, the healthy cell of the body, it would get into and have no effect. And in the senescent cells, it would kill them. So we actually started Oncosenics when we tried the same approach in cancer. So basically writing a genetic program, cancer cells have oncogenes. They have these genes that are turned on to make them grow out of control. We wrote a computer program in DNA that allowed them to basically read this. And if these oncogenes were turned on, they would then activate this suicide gene program, putting the cells through apoptosis, which really tells themselves to commit suicide and sparing all of the healthy cells of the body. Wow. I'm digesting everything that we're talking about. I should have taken more science courses in, in university. Two years later, 2020, you founded Aegis Life, which is a biotech company based in San Diego. And this company is focused on infectious diseases, and you are the CEO. Was this spurred on by the pandemic? It absolutely was. So Oshin, Oncosenex, and Aegis are all sort of, we call them sister companies to Entos Pharmaceuticals. So in Entos that we started in 2016, we basically took Roy's fusion protein lipid particle technology and basically built a platform that we could use to make gene therapies, but also potentially to make vaccines and also to potentially to make longevity increasing drugs and also to make gene therapies for cancer. And then we created these sister companies so that this company could focus on a particular area. And the pandemic really brought into focus key area that we thought about but hadn't taken any action on. And that was the creation of vaccines. Because when the pandemic started, we knew Moderna well, we knew Pfizer and BioNTech, and we had a really good feeling that what they were doing was going to be quick and it would most likely be effective. But we thought it had key limitations. And as we've learned, RNA is designed to be temporary. It's not very stable. And so the vaccines we make out of them have to be frozen at minus 80 and, and luckily now only minus 20, but still can't use the same cold chain as a flu vaccine, for instance. And because we could deliver DNA in our platform, we thought, I think we can make a DNA vaccine for COVID that would be really stable, put it in a regular fridge, have the same cold chain and distribution as the flu vaccine, but hopefully be just as potent and potentially even more potent. So we developed that vaccine both in Entos Pharmaceuticals in Canada, but also spun out a company in the US, Aegis Life, to help us commercialize that vaccine worldwide and also develop other medicines in the infectious disease space. So Entos, we touched on earlier, founded in 2016, and it's now a team of about 40 people, I understand. What's the biggest challenge you face in growing that company? So the, obviously the pandemic has made it a challenge to do a lot of things. And even though the pandemic's waning now, a lot of challenges are still there. Getting talent, obviously, is a challenge. In Canada, we just have fantastic academic institutions. The pipeline of sort of raw, well-trained talent is great. But what we don't have is a mature biotechnology industry in Canada. 
So having experienced executives, particularly in areas like regulatory, areas like manufacturing, is definitely a challenge. We're working with other academic institutions in Canada to try to build these training programs and internship programs to really build that, you know, that expertise within Canada. I agree with you on every point there. I read that you have a goal for cancer, and I would appreciate you sharing it with us. So when I moved to Edmonton, I realized that we could achieve a lifelong goal of mine, and that was basically to take all the amazing cancer research we do in the lab, all the findings. You know, cancer's been cured in the lab thousands and thousands of times. But the real challenge is taking those innovative discoveries in the lab and moving them into the clinic and through the clinic, hopefully in the patients. And so we founded the Alberta Prostate Cancer Research Initiative just to do that. Actually, in diagnostics and our new blood test for prostate cancers, the first big success from that program, in two months, we're launching Clarity DX Prostate. It'll be available in Canada. It'll be basically a supercharged PSA test. It's about three times more accurate than PSA in predicting clinically significant prostate cancer. We're really excited to be able to make it available to all Canadians in the near future. That's fabulous, Lunes. From a commercialization standpoint, entrepreneurship standpoint, what do you think your biggest win has been and what did it teach you? If you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have given you a completely different answer because things have definitely changed over time. One thing that we couldn't have predicted was we were developing this genetic medicine platform. I actually developed it to cure metastatic cancer. And so in my lab, we discovered the genes that are driving metastasis, and we were using this platform to block them and block the spread of cancer. In 2016, though, we realized that the LNP technology you mentioned that Peter Cullis developed, and on the other side, adeno-associated virus AAV was being used for gene therapies. Both of those have key limitations that made them not appropriate for all of the different other gene therapies we could do. And we realized in 2016 that possibly our technology, this fusogenics proteolipid vehicle technology, would be able to address that. As we got through the pandemic and all of the excitement around lipid nanoparticles and all of the excitement around gene therapy really put our platform in the spotlight as a next generation LNP. We just had spectacular interest from basically all the pharma companies. We did a transformative collaboration relationship with Eli Lilly last year where they exclusively licensed development in all CNS and PNS diseases, which is basically brain diseases, working together on diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. And that really catapulted Entos into this growth phase. We've got enough resources to be able to take this technology we have that we're curing diseases with Eli Lilly and apply them to all the other stuff we're passionate about, metastatic cancers, crippling childhood genetic diseases, eye diseases, and really nothing's outside the scope of what we can do now. Wow. Let me reverse that question. Are there any losses that you've encountered that you had a lot of difficulty overcoming? And did any in particular teach you valuable lessons that you carry with you? In any entrepreneur's life, there's a lot of struggle and a lot of failures. The definitely had a few of those. I would say the biggest learning experience for me and, and I would say my entire team, because you know all the stuff we've accomplished, you know, I'm at the top, but there, I have some spectacular folks that I work with that are so passionate. It was really the COVID vaccine development for us. Given the immediacy of the pandemic and the devastation we saw it, we had this core group of folks who just worked day and night for months and months and months. In seven months, we got to a phase one trial. We did it at the Canadian Center for Vaccinology. I would say the lesson we learned, you know, we didn't have the benefit of time to really design a well thought out program. So we did this phase one trial. And of course, then the vaccines were already becoming available. And we decided to do the phase two trial. The only place that we could find to do the phase two trial, Burkina Faso. If I'd gone back in time, we definitely would not have done that trial. I really like the idea of going into underdeveloped nation or working in small villages. That part of it really appealed to me. And it was a primary immunization environment, so they hadn't been exposed to COVID yet. So we'd really get to test our vaccine. But what we didn't predict is that Burkina Faso would have two violent coups during the time we we're doing our trial and really, really made that trial untenable. And so we've got this really promising vaccine, just spectacular results. And we just weren't able to show the world that we had those results because of the decisions we made about that trial. And so we're in the process, I think, coming back to Canada and we'll test the vaccine as a booster in Canada. We're really excited about that. But I think we definitely would have done it differently you know, with the benefit of hindsight. Some things you just cannot protect. And I would think an armed rebellion would be probably near the top of that list. Absolutely. I read that over your career, you've come to believe in something called alignment of interests. I think you just touched on it, but I'd appreciate you explaining what you, you mean by that and why it's important to you. I love that question. And it's a question that, that recurs a lot, especially as an academic scientist. 
an academic scientist, you want to try to relieve yourself of as many biases as possible. Especially nowadays, we've seen a lot of examples of bias in the scientific literature. And so it's a very important thing when you make decisions about science and how to publish science that you are not conflicted by other goals, whether they be monetary goals or career goals or anything else. So it's, it's something that academic scientists take very seriously and academic institutions take very seriously. But if we agree that the goal of doing research, the goal of learning about disease, about learning about new therapeutic approaches, if our goal is to positively impact patients, then we have to embrace these conflicts. So we have to embrace the idea that we might want to take one of these and create a company and do a clinical trial and try to convince a pharma company to invest in it because it's a very expensive, risky, difficult process and you need partners and you need resources to be able to be successful. I've rebranded conflict of interest to alignment of interest. Now, obviously it doesn't apply to every situation. In every case, I've tried to create these alignments between what I'm doing in the academic lab to have spun off companies that are aligned on the goal and the goal is always with that clear line of sight to the patient. How are we going to positively impact the life of that patient and their family? And what can we do in the lab, in the company, with the collaboration with pharma to be able to achieve that goal? I appreciate you sharing that. And again, I'm digesting what you just said, and it makes so much sense. You've got feet firmly planted in probably three worlds, academia, research, not quite one and the same in my mind. And and commercialization and trying to align interests, especially between academia and money, has been a significant roadblock in Canada. Not so much in the American research environment, but it remains a roadblock today. It is getting better. You would know better than I, but I'm really fascinated by what you just said. You've got a lot of demands. I'm just guessing more than the average bear and a lot of pressure. How do you unwind? What do you do to relax? And I would not survive if I did not have a lot of things I could take my mind off or at least process things. I'm an early riser. This has been a wonderful development over the past five years. I get up at 5.45 in the morning. I go for a 5K run. I actually have a koi pond now, so I just hang out, listen to the running water, feed the koi, think about my day. I mountain bike a lot. I'm a very, very slow, improving surfer. It's definitely not something I've mastered yet. That's something I'm really keen to master at some time in the future. And I also avid snowboarder as well. So during my PhD, we had this epic snowfall, 1996, biggest until this year. And so I learned how to snowboard that year. I've really been doing it every year since. And since my life's become so incredibly complex, I make sure I take every two or three weeks to get a couple of days on the mountain. Good for you. This might be a tough question, but looking back, what is it you're most proud of? That's a very, very simple answer, and, and I didn't have to think about it. It's my family. I mean, I have such an incredible family. My kids are just spectacular. They are smart. They're unfortunately just like me as a kid in some cases, and uh, we're in for a journey, that's for sure. You know, I've managed through my career to be able to mostly be self-directed in my use of time. I've tried to keep travel to a minimum, and because of that, I got to spend a lot of time bringing up my kids and cooking meals at home and, and stuff like that, and, and I'm so proud of them. Along the same vein, and looking back, is there one skill in particular you've mastered but had difficulty learning? I have spent my entire lifetime perfecting a latte. Making espresso and the latte art that goes into it, I have spent 35 years perfecting that art, and I think I'm pretty much there. What's the key? It's a science, but it's really consistency. If you make a thousand coffees, one of them's going to be epic, but it's making the epic coffee every time that requires just discipline. And it's really just, it's a process I go through a couple times a day that is so consistent, it's beautiful. I understand one of your best mistakes happened in the Vancouver airport when you're chief science officer and you were trying to get to a conference in Boston. What was that about? We were coming back from a conference in Boston. So we're coming from Boston, connecting through Vancouver and then connecting to Edmonton. My chief science officer and I were got to the airport. The airport was crazy. We had a very tight connection. I had my Nexus card, so I was able to go right through security. He didn't have a Nexus card, so he got stuck in a huge lineup. And actually, I thought he was going to make it. So I was texting him going, you know, just just shout out, like, do you know who I am? <laughs> Which technically didn't do. Texting him right in the seat, like, okay, well, you better get here now or you're not going to make it. And he missed the flight. And it was the best thing that ever happened to us. He got a room in the hotel in Vancouver, went to the bar, had a drink, and basically thought about, after all the meetings we had in Boston, we were talking about gene delivery, 
and basically came up with an epiphany of how we could modify our platform basically to be quite a bit better, to basically make it what it is today. He excitedly called me the next day. I got this great idea. Let's do it and set us on the path we are now. That's cool. What's the best advice you've ever been given? So the best advice I've been given is actually from my dad. So my dad, cataract surgeon his whole life, came from pretty meager beginnings in, in England and was always thinking about economics, thinking about how to save money and keep that money without losing it and really do deep research into the things he was investing in and so that he would be able to provide for his family going forward. And, and so that mindset really stuck with me the whole time. I've always had that economic mindset, taking something, building it slightly bigger, building value. If you could go back 10 years and have a do-over, is there anything you'd change? Personal health, I would definitely go back and change if I could. As an academic scientist, entrepreneur, I tried to keep active and tried to eat well and, and maybe didn't do as good a job as I thought. And now being a part of the longevity field and learning about things like intermittent fasting and eating properly. And if I could have done that 10 years earlier, it would have been great. Let's stay on this do-over theme and turn back the clock a bit further to give some advice perhaps to some listeners who are just in the midst or have just finishing their undergraduate degrees. If you could go back to your university years, are there any courses you now realize you should have taken? So actually, no. I'm very happy with the courses I took, but I think it's very easy these days to meticulously plan out all your steps and what you're going to do and where you're going to apply and what courses you're going to take. The best experience I had were generally in courses that I just took on a whim. So economics is a great one. Economics isn't just about money. It's about value and, and relationships and trends. And again, I mentioned meteorology, learning about climate and chaos and all of that. I found it, you know, my life always went undergrad all the way through. Trying to be open-minded about other perspectives is really key into making breakthroughs. And bringing a naive perspective, in particular to things like cancer, I think has allowed me to see things that potentially aren't seen by the people in the field that will allow me to make some progress. So I would say, keep an open mind. Don't draw a straight line between now and five years from now, because who knows what opportunities will come up and you definitely need to be open to them. Stay curious. You and your team are on the front lines of cancer research. What obstacles do you see? The real challenge with cancer is that it's a one word and it's hundreds of diseases. So finding commonalities between the way cancers develop is really the key to winning the war. And I would say immunotherapy has been a huge benefit, a huge breakthrough in basically arming the immune system to attack cancer. And I think things like that will cure cancer. But I see the biggest challenge is in drug delivery because we have developed amazing tools to be able to kill cancer. But really the challenge is getting those tools into the body so they can actually act on the cancer specifically. This is a real challenge. I would appreciate your thoughts on the, the current status of the Canadian life sciences community. Where are we today and where do you think we're going to be in five or 10 years? Certainly had its ups and downs. I think the pandemic really handcuffed a lot of labs. So any lab that wasn't working in infectious disease or immunology or COVID were basically shut down. So most of the Canadian universities were shut down. Although some people got to focus on the writing, which was good. It really slowed down the progress. And I think many labs in Canada are struggling to recover from that. I would say, on the other hand, farther downstream part of things, funding for biomanufacturing, funding for fundamental research. And I think that certainly in the newest budget, we have this really exciting prospect of creating an entity that will work both with companies and academic centers to drive innovative technologies forward. And I think that's a really good sign. I think we definitely have to maintain a solid funding for the fundamental research because then there'll be nothing to commercialize arena patients if we don't have those findings. But giving those innovative new technologies a path to make it in Canada, be developed in Canada to create this industry, to have Canadian trained people working on these innovations, I think is really key. And, and we'll create a booming industry in Canada because we have all the tools, all the pieces to be able to do that. I absolutely agree. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? It's been several decades in the making, but we sequence the human genome. We've developed these incredible tools to now manipulate gene expression up or down, but really, really importantly, to now to be able to edit genes. Gene editing, I think, is the future. And we've heard a lot about CRISPR, but I think CRISPR is the proof of concept. I think what's really exciting are these new enzymes that are being discovered that can seamlessly edit, change, correct huge genes very simply in a way 
that we can replicate, basically create them for every single genetic and related disease that we face as humans. And I think this is really the next big thing, marrying delivery technologies like ours with the new cutting edge genetic technology really opens up just an amazing future. John Lewis, thank you for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. It's been great. That was John Lewis, founder and CEO of Entos Pharma in Edmonton, Alberta. If you'd like to learn more about John and his team, please go to entospharma.com. The NGB Ideas podcast is part of Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit that's taking place this October in Hamilton, Ontario. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. Thanks to Tisha Prasad for researching and editing this week's episode. If you're interested in following us on social, we are at Lab Occupier. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email is jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. This show ends our first season. We hope you like what we're doing, and we'll appreciate you promoting us on social with the hashtag NGBIdeas. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to having you join us for season two.